Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 256. Today's big Bible question, what is greater than love? And today's big Bible answer, nothing. But don't stop listening just yet. So, hello, welcome into another terrific Tuesday. Okay, maybe a tepid Tuesday. It could be worse Tuesday. I don't know. Some things that get a lot of hype are just plain overrated. And I'm thinking about overrated and underrated and properly rated things today. Yeezy shoes, insanely and strangely overrated. Although I like the blue oat kind, that's a, that's a good color. And by the way, I'm about to show my age here with my list of things that are overrated and underrated. Just forgive me my ramblings for a moment. The Kardashians, vastly overrated. Snapchat, you bet it's overrated. It's one of the worst interfaces ever conceived. Gender reveal parties that include explosive devices that trigger massive forest fires? Yeah, one of the most overrated things ever. That's happened several times out here in California of late. Back in the day, we found out if we were having a boy or a girl and maybe told our parents or maybe mentioned it on (laughs) MySpace back in our parents' day, The gender reveal was surprisingly close to the baby reveal. In fact, they usually happened the exact same time. Duck face selfies shows where the hosts holler at each other over a different topic each time. And TikTok hand dances? You better believe those are all overrated. Michael Jordan, Krispy Kreme Donuts, Chick-fil-A, Popeye's Chicken Sandwiches, and Oreo O's Cereal. Those things are all properly rated as a 10 out of 10. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is a pretty hyped Bible chapter. Maybe the most hyped chapter in the entire Bible, even though it's not specifically referring to romantic or marital love. It's frequently read at weddings, and it's one of the most well-known Bible chapters in the Western world. Is it overrated? Not even close. As well known as 1 Corinthians 13 is, it's probably underrated. The deepest of theological truths combined with poetry worthy of words worth. 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the best things I've ever read. And we're going to read it together today along with 2 Samuel 2, Ezekiel 11, and Psalm chapter 50. Well, let's go now and read the beautiful and powerful and eloquent 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all of my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. Love is not irritable, and it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. 
But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So apologies to our church family at Valley Baptist Church in Salinas, but I do want to share with you a fantastic story that some of them, and maybe even some of you podcast listeners, already heard on Sunday. Don't despair, though. I actually have some great stories to end with that are fresh and new, and uh, some other new things as well. But I didn't want other podcast listeners to miss out on this story. So if you want to understand what love is, and how it looks, and what sort of behavior love produces... You want to read and reread 1 Corinthians 13. If you want an example of that kind of love, I want to show you one in John the Apostle. Now, this story about the life of John doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from a church historian called Eusebius, who was writing in the 200s. Now, it's interesting, John the Apostle is an interesting guy because he knew an early church father named Polycarp who knew another early church father named Irenaeus. And so there was this kind of link of early church fathers that went all the way back to John. And so we get sort of some uh, word-of-mouth stories passed down through them that aren't in the Bible, but I think are pretty reliable. So I don't take this story as infallible or inspired in a God-breathed sense, but I do think it's truthful and it's told reliably by Eusebius, a reliable church historian. And if you're not familiar with the John I'm talking about, I'm talking about the John of the Bible, the John of uh, who leaned his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper, the John who wrote the Gospel of John in Revelation, and probably wrote the epistles of John too, including, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God does not the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. That is 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Here's the story. When John was an older man, he traveled from Ephesus to another church to appoint leaders in that church in much the same way that Paul and Silas and Paul and Barnabas did. Once the main leader of that church was appointed, John charged him with the adopted care of a young orphan that John had met in the city, one who apparently was part of the church there, did not have parents, not sure why. But John chose and charged this leader who he had ordained to lead this church to raise the boy to manhood and disciple him with the words of Jesus. And the the man took him into his home and did just that for quite some time, teaching the boy, baptizing the boy, taking great care of him, loving him, and etc. Unfortunately, apparently after baptism, this church leader relaxed his care a little bit. The young guy fell into the wrong crowd as a teenager and ultimately became a petty criminal and then a more hardened criminal. And then in his 20s, apparently, a very violent robber captain that would kidnap people and uh, and do violence to them. Now, I want to tell this story in Eusebius's own words translated into English. It was at this time that John returned to the city, even older, and asked about the boy to the church leader who declared, He is dead. 
How is he dead? What kind of death, said John? He's dead to God, said the church leader, for he turned wicked and abandoned it all and became a robber. And now instead of the church, he haunts the mountain with a band like himself. But the apostle tore his clothes and beating his head with great lamentation said, let a horse be brought to me and let someone show me the way. And he rode away from the church just as he was, and coming to the place where the robber frequented, he was taken by prisoner uh, by the robber's outpost. He, however, neither tried to flee nor begged, but cried out, I came for this, lead me to your captain. The latter, meanwhile, was waiting, armed with weapons. But when he saw John approaching, he turned away in shame to flee. But John, forgetting his old age, pursued him with all his might, crying out, Why, my son, do you flee from me, your own father, unarmed and aged? Pity me, my son, fear not, you still have hope of life. I will give account to Christ for you. If need be, I will willingly endure death from you as the Lord suffered death for us. For you I will give up my life. Stop! Believe Christ has sent me. And that robber captain, when he heard, first stopped and looked down. Then he threw away his weapons and then trembled and wept bitterly. And when the old man approached, he embraced him, making confession with lamentations as he was able, baptizing himself a second time with tears. But John, pledging himself and assuring him on oath that he would find forgiveness with the Savior, pleaded with him fell upon his knees, embraced him, and led him back to the church, and making intercession for him with copious prayers and struggling together with him in continual fastings and subduing his mind by various teachings, he did not depart, as they say, until he had restored him to the church, furnishing a great example of true repentance and a great proof of regeneration, a trophy of a visible resurrection. That is a wonderful story, and it's a wonderful illustration of leaving the 99 to rescue the one who is wandering. And it's a good picture for us of love. If you love somebody, and you must love all if you are a follower of Jesus, then you must treat them in accord with the descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love and how we treat people is not based on whether or not we are feeling pleasantly disposed toward that person or not or not at the moment. It's not based on how they are behaving or at the moment or not, whether or not they've become a robber captain or not, for instance. But love is patient, whether we want to be patient or not. Love is kind, whether the person in question deserves our kindness or not. Love is not irritable, even if those around us are irritating. Love does not quit even when we want to. Love never fails. Love is the greatest thing, says Paul, and it also forms the basis for the first and second greatest commands in the entire Bible, according to Jesus. In fact, Jesus says that all of the law and the prophets hang on loving loving God and loving each other. Now, I take from this teaching that love must be central to everything that we do. Love must inform our actions when we are in debate or disagreement with somebody, so says John Amazing Grace Newton in a letter to a minister friend of his who was about to confront somebody who was teaching false things. And this is how John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, told this minister to behave in this confrontation. He says, As to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him, in other words, before you write to him, and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart to love and pity him 
and such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him, therefore you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you and he will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts, and though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. Now that's good stuff from Newton as always. So we learned so far from John Newton, when we are in a dispute of any kind with somebody, to pray for them, to remember that they are a child of God, and to remember that you too are a sinner and you are forgiven by Jesus. And we learn from the example of John the Apostle that love sometimes means putting yourself in danger and risking to go after somebody that's straying. Love is action. Love is patient. Love is kind. I want to read one more story today. This is from a writer named Greg Lucas, who honestly does not write nearly enough, though he is a fantastic writer. In this story about a violent fight, you will learn much about love, and may it drive you and me to love others with the kind of love that God loves you with and the kind of love that Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians 13. Greg says this, I got into a fist fight last week. Well, I suppose you could call it a fist fight. I got hit about 10 or 12 times without landing a single punch myself. It's been a while since I've been in a fight. As a police officer, I probably get into more fights than the average middle-aged man, but at 46, my reflexes are not what they used to be, So I got a little beat up. It all started when I attempted to make a man do something I thought he should do. I grabbed his shirt sleeve and directed him in the direction I wanted him to go. I'm usually pretty good at directing people, but apparently he was not having the best day, and this was not the direction he wanted to go, so he responded by taking a swing at me. I managed to duck the first blow and easily redirect his momentum, moving him through the open door of my pickup truck where he landed square on his back in the front seat. With his back to the seat, he reached for anything he could throw in my direction to keep me away from him, which happened to be a set of car keys, a water bottle, and an ESV Bible. The keys missed my head by a couple of inches, and I managed to dodge the water bottle, but the Bible hit me right in the chest, resulting in an out-of-context yet unforgettable illustration of Hebrews 4.12, which says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit. As he searched the cab of my truck for something else to launch at me, I took advantage of the distraction and rushed forward through the doorway. He caught me with an upkick to my midsection, but I did manage to grab both his legs and pin them to the dash. My tunnel vision focus on his legs, though, left his hands unsecured, and I was met with five or six quick strikes to the back of my head with his fist, followed by several scratches to my scalp and face from his fingernails. Believe it or not, my mind instinctively went back to a basic rule from my initial police training. Watch the hands. Hands kill. If you control the hands, you control the fight. I abandoned his legs and latched onto his wrists, pushing his fists into his chest while simultaneously wrapping my leg around his ankles to try to control his feet. 
His explosive strength and speed humbled my aging muscles and slower reflexes, but at least I was now in control of the situation, or so I thought. About that time, I was catching my breath and making a new game plan. I felt a sharp, vice-like lock on my forearm and looked up to see the man clenching his teeth down on my jacket sleeve. My jacket was thick, thick enough to keep the bite from penetrating skin, but the initial shock of the pain made me instinctively react. Still holding his wrists, I broke away from the bite and lodged my elbow and forearm under his chin, forcing his head back, his mouth closed, and averting any possible head-butting or biting retaliation. The only offense he had left was to spit in my direction, which he did several times between primal screams of violent anger. I took the spit. It was better than the alternative. Turning my face to avoid most of the projectile spray, I just happened to glance to the back seat of the truck where I saw my wife, daughter, and teenage son. The look on their faces made me realize how serious this incident had become. I needed to end this fight. With one last burst of adrenaline-filled energy, I lifted the man to his feet and out of the seat. Still holding his wrists, I swept his legs with my left foot and took him to the ground in the soft snow beside the door of the truck. The powder of the snow absorbed most of the impact, allowing me to move to a superior position. As I pinned his arms to the ground with my hands, I knew by the look on his face the fight was almost over. He continued to struggle and spit, but he was quickly running out of gas. I held him there in the snow till the ice absorbed his energy and cooled his rage. Are you finished? I muttered, nearly out of breath. I'm not letting you go. He struggled one last time and then nodded his head in surrender. I slowly but cautiously helped him to his feet and dusted the snow from his back. This fight was over. I loaded him into the truck and continued on to our destination. The man I was fighting is not some deranged criminal. He is my son. Autistic and nonverbal, he is a two-year-old in a twenty-year-old body. Like most two-year-olds, he throws fits from time to time. Unlike most two-year-olds, he can do a lot of damage. He can hurt my wife and seriously hurt my daughter, and he can almost whip me. Almost. It all began as we were headed out the door going to a Super Bowl party. He wanted to take his iPad, and I said no, and he transformed into the Incredible Hulk. Sitting in the truck with a protective arm around my son, I began to think how the Lord could possibly be in this. I thought of big words like sanctification and sovereignty, even imago day and fearfully and wonderfully made. These are bold and profound words I admittedly preach louder when the times are less painful. Then, as the adrenaline dump sapped all of my remaining strength, a glaring image flashed through my head of a man struggling to get away. He cursed his family and his Lord. He fought against love and kicked against the goats. He spit in the face of the one who loved him most. But despite the rebellion and violence, even though the wor through the worst of sin and insurrection, his father would not let him go, holding him tightly till all the defiant energy was spent. I am that man. I will not let you go. I remember those tough words of tough love and bloody redemption very well spoken by the father of my salvation and echoed by the wife of my youth. I am eternally grateful for their tenacious gospel grip. Jake, my son, finally settled down and apologized with tears, hugs, and kisses. I wonder how he can vacillate so quickly between innocent bliss and animalistic violence. I wonder how much longer my strength will hold out, but no matter how he acts, he will always be my son. 
I will fight his rebellion with all my strength and all my love, and I will never let go because I was never let go. That was written by Greg Lucas. And uh, if you want to go to BibleReadingPodcast.com, you can find a link to his blog where he hasn't written anything in four years, but it's sheepdogger, sheepdogger.blogspot.com. You can also find a link to his book on Amazon about um, raising his son and the difficulties there and the goodness of God. And it's called Wrestling an Angel. And uh, it's by Greg Lucas. And you can find that on uh, Amazon. And I recommend you go get it. Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. Sometime later, David inquired of the Lord, Should I go to one of the towns of Judah? And the Lord answered him, Go. And then David asked, Where should I go? To Hebron, the Lord replied. So David went there with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelite, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. In addition, David brought the men who were with him, each one with his family, and they settled in the towns near Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. They told David, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, The Lord bless you because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord when you buried him. Now may the Lord show kindness and faithfulness to you, and I will also show the same goodness to you because you have done this deed. Therefore be strong and valiant, for though Saul your Lord is dead, the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Abner son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Saul, Saul's son Ish-bosheth, and moved him to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead. Asher, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, over all of Israel. Saul's son Ish-bosheth was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, and soldiers of Ish-bosheth, son of Saul, marched out from Manhanaim to Gibeon, to Joab, so Joab, son of Zariah, and David's soldiers marched out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. The two groups took up positions on opposite sides of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Let's have the young men get up and compete in front of us. Let them get up, Joab replied. So they got up and were counted off, twelve for Benjamin and Ish-bosheth, son of Saul, and twelve from David's soldiers. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side so that they all died together. So this place, which is in Gibeon, is named Field of Blades. The battle that day was extremely fierce, and Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by David's soldiers. The three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Ashael. Ashael was a fast runner, like one of the wild gazelles. He chased Abner and did not turn to the right or left in his pursuit of him. Abner glanced back and said, Is that you, Asahel? Yes, it is, Asahel replied. Abner said to him, Turn to your right or left. Seize one of the young soldiers. Take whatever you can get from him. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Once again, Abner warned Ashael, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How could I ever look your brother Joab in the face? But Ashael refused to turn away, so Abner hit him in the stomach with the butt of his spear. The spear went through his body, and he fell and died right there. As they all came to the place where Ashael had fallen and died, they stopped, but Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. By sunset, they had gone as far as the hill of Ammah, which is opposite Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. The Benjaminites rallied to Abner. They formed a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? 
Don't you realize this will only end in bitterness? How long before you tell the troops to stop pursuing their brothers? As God lives, Joab replied, if you had not spoken up, the troops wouldn't have stopped pursuing their brothers until morning. Then Joab blew the ram's horn and all the troops stopped. They no longer pursued Israel or continued to fight. So Abner and his men marched through the Arabah all that night. They crossed the Jordan, marched all morning, and arrived at Manaim. When Joab had turned back from pursuing Abner, he gathered all the troops. In addition to Ashael, 19 of David's soldiers were missing, but they had killed 360 of the Benjaminites and Abner's men. Afterward, they carried Ashael to his father's tomb in Bethlehem and buried him. Then Joab and his men marched all night and reached Hebron at dawn. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 1. The Spirit then lifted me up and brought me to the eastern gate of the Lord's house, which faces east, and at the gate's entrance were twenty-five men. Among them I saw Jataniah, son of Atzer, and Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. The Lord said to me, Son of man, these are the men who plot evil and give wicked advice in this city. They are saying, Isn't the time near to build houses? The city is the pot, and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, son of man. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on me, and he told me, You are to say, This is what the Lord says. This is what you are thinking, house of Israel. And I know the thoughts that arise in your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, filling its streets with them. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. The slain you have put it within it are the meat, and the city is the pot, but I will take you out of it. You fear the sword, so I will bring the sword against you. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will take you out of the city and hand you over to foreigners. I will execute judgments against you. You will fall by the sword, and I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The city will not be a pot for you, and you will not be the meat within it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, so you will know that I am the Lord, whose statutes you have not followed and whose ordinances you have not practiced. Practiced. Instead, you have acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. Now, while I was prophesying, Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. And then I fell face down and cried out loudly, O Lord God, you are bringing the remnant of Israel to an end. The word of the Lord came to me again. Son of man, your own relatives, those who have the right to redeem your property, along with the entire house of Israel, all of them, are those to whom the residents of Jerusalem have said, You are far from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say, This is what the Lord God says, Though I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, This is what the Lord God says, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they arrive there... They will remove all its abhorrent acts and detestable practices from it. I will give them integrity of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh so that they will follow my statutes, keep my ordinances, and practice them. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts pursue their desire for abhorrent acts and detestable practices, I will bring their conduct down on their own heads." This is the declaration of the Lord God. Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, lifted their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord rose up from within the city and stopped on the mountain east of the city. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to Chaldea and to the exiles in a vision from the Spirit of God. 
After the vision I had seen left me, I spoke to the exiles about all the things the Lord had shown me. Psalm chapter 50, verse 1. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. From Zion, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. Our God is coming. He will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes Him and a storm rages around Him. On high, He summons heaven and earth in order to judge His people. Gather my faithful ones to me, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God is the judge, Selah. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. But God says to the wicked, What right do you have to recite my statutes and to take my covenant on your lips? You hate instruction and fling my words behind you. When you see a thief, you make friends with him, and you associate with adulterers. You unleash your mouth for evil and harness your tongue for deceit. You sit, maligning your brother, slandering your mother's son. You've done these things, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you, but I will rebuke you and lay out the case before you. Understand this, you who forget God, or I will tear you apart, and there will be no one to rescue you. Whoever offers a thanksgiving sacrifice honors me, and whoever orders his conduct, I will show him the salvation of God. We will not forget you are our God, our King. Good day to you, friends, and Godspeed.